Good morning, Mission Church. It is uh, a joy to be with you this morning, and as always, it is an even greater joy to be with you, to be able to share God's Word with you as I am this morning. So uh, thank you for this opportunity, and, and thank you for uh, just being here and being amongst family. Over the past couple of months, uh, we've been looking at First Timothy now. And as a way of reminder, this pastoral letter was written from Paul to Timothy somewhere between 62 and 64 AD. And this was approximately five years after Paul had written his letter to the church there in Ephesus in general. Now, Timothy was serving as a pastor there at Ephesus, and Pastor Paul was writing to Pastor Timothy in the form of a polemic letter, meaning that he was writing to correct error. Now, these errors were predicted by Paul as he knelt there with the leaders of the Ephesian church at Miletus. We read about that in Acts 29, uh, 20, 29, when Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Well, Paul's prediction had come true. It had come true, and from the very beginning verses of this pastoral letter, we get a feel and a tone of the polemic nature of it. When Paul says, by the commandment of God, by the commandment of God, as opposed to, in contrast to how many times Paul would open a letter with, by the will of God. Also, Paul would say to Timothy, his true child of the faith, or my own son. Paul was preparing Timothy, his protege, to do some house cleaning, not from with, only within the congregation, but also from within the leadership of the church there at Ephesus. And so, therefore, Timothy needed to be reminded and encouraged that he had a direct commandment from God passed down through Paul. And Paul was stating this to Timothy in making him aware of the fact that, that he is an ambassador. He is an, an ambassador and represents the authority of Paul as an apostle to this church. Now, to clean house from the top down, from the leadership down, Timothy was going to be need to be reminded and affirmed of these things, especially for a guy, as we know, who was prone to being timid. And so as we read about in Scripture... Now, in our text today, we find ourselves at a turning point in the book. Now, up to this point, we've been pretty instructional, pretty positive. However, from this point forward, we're going to go from the positive to the negative. We go from the instructional to the teaching and making aware of false teachers and those who depart from the faith. And thus, Paul writes this polemic letter, and he wants us to get back to the basics. Christian faith. And as he goes from the positive to the negative, he wants us to remember those basic, foundational, fundamental truths of the church. In our text today, I'm somewhat of a guy who likes alliteration, so it helps me remember. Hopefully it will you too. But in today's uh, text, we're going to see, first of all, the care of the pastor. And then we will see the conduct of the church. And then we will see the calling of the church. And then finally, we will see the confession of the church. So, 
Let's get started. So the first thing that we see in the text is the care of the pastor. In verse 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know. Paul wants to come and be with Timothy and also the congregation there at Ephesus. It is his desire to be with them. Now, this letter is his backup plan. And pastoral care can be learned here. Pastoral care can be seen here. Pastoral care is something that cannot be done from a distance. Something that I've learned very quickly in serving as a pastor here is the fact that you got to be willing to smell like sheep. A shepherd must smell like sheep. A pastor must be willing to be among the people and be willing to be messy with the sheep. It's a requirement. And it can be absolutely gut-wrenching. It can equate to many sleepless nights. But it is the calling, nonetheless. It is the care of the pastor. Unfortunately, we live in a day and a time of the celebrity pastor. It is, unfortunately, part of our culture. We live in a time where someone can be in a church, yet they have never shook the hand of their pastor. And they only know that person from the big stage or the jumbotron. As we've learned, one of the qualifications for an elder is that they must be above reproach. And so how could you possibly know if that person who is telling you, thus says the Lord, is above reproach if you've never looked them in the eye, if you've never shared a meal with them, if you've never spent time with them? How can you know that? How can you know that about their family? And so we see here in the text Paul's desire to be with this congregation. You know, not too long ago, a very prominent pastor in our culture, he stated this when asked about how a pastor is compared to being a shepherd. Let me read to you his words. He says this. He says, well, that word needs to go away, speaking of being a shepherd. He says, Jesus talked about shepherds because there was one over there in the pastor that he could point to. But to bring in that imagery today and say, Pastor, you're a shepherd of the flock. No, I've never seen a flock. I've never spent five minutes with a shepherd. It was culturally relevant in the time of Jesus, but it's not culturally relevant anymore. And so he went on to say this in regards to how a pastor should be looked at. He says, one of the criticisms I get is that your church is so corporate. I read blogs all the time, and bloggers complain, well, the pastor's like a CEO, and I say, Okay, you're right. Now, why is that a bad model? A principle is a principle, and God created all principles. Now, understanding, guys, the role of the pastor as a shepherd does not take a great deal of contextualization, a great deal of understanding. It's a simple precept. A shepherd is to smell and to be among the sheep. He's supposed to smell like sheep. A pastor is not a CEO. It is a sad day when a pastor is looked more like a CEO than a shepherd. Pastoring is not about managing people and casting vision. It is about shepherding the flock of God. Now also, we can see Paul is coming to be very specifically with Timothy. He is coming there to Ephesus to be specifically with Timothy. And this tells us a lot about leadership. 
leadership can be defined as influence. And it plays itself out practically in getting things done effectively through other people. Thus, a leader is able to multiply himself and do ultimately more things. It's, it's a simple concept. Yes, by all means, Paul would be with the congregation there at Ephesus, but he was coming to be very specifically with Timothy. And he would spend his time pouring into Timothy, who would in turn pour himself into the congregation there at Ephesus. Now, had Paul come in as the super apostle and save the day, you know, he would no doubt make that congregation dependent upon him, and thus undercutting and giving the impression that Timothy was an inadequate leader. And so the care of the pastor should always be to bring up leaders for the next generation and that the ministry not be built upon one man. And I hope that we project that model here at Mission Church. And finally, Paul wants Timothy to know. Being a Christian is about being in the know. In the book of 1 John, we read over and over and over so many times about how John wants us to know. Just a couple of verses here. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. 1 John chapter 2, 21, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In the book of 1 John, this very small book, over 30 times, 30 times, John speaks about knowing. As Christians, we are to know. We are to know God, to make Him known to all people. That is what we're about. We're about knowing. And Paul wants us to be in the know here in the text of 1 Timothy. He wants us to know God. He wants us to be informed of what God's will is for our lives and His church and how to live rightly for Him. Now, thinking about the care of the pastor, if you think about the perfect pastor, Christ Jesus, we can see how Jesus set this model and Paul is simply following the model that Jesus set for us all. And so when you think about it, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, He left His throne in heaven to be with us. He wanted to be among us. This is what Jesus did. He dwelt among us. Jesus, being the perfect leader, the perfect pastor, what did He do? He poured Himself into a handful of men who would ultimately change the world. Jesus, being the perfect pastor who knows all things, revealed God to us and makes Him known to us. That's what He did. And this is the care of the pastor. And this is the example that Paul gives us here in verse 14 as we see how he wants to be with Timothy. He wants to be with this congregation. He wants to raise up leaders. And he wants us to be in the know. Now, next we see exactly what Paul does want us to know. He wants us to know the conduct of the church. 
verse 15 when he says, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Now, if there was anything that this church at Ephesus should have understood, it was the fact that they were this. They were family. They were family. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, we read, In love he predestined us for what? For adoption to himself. As what? As sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the, pra- to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God has adopted us. God has taken a people who has turned his backs upon him, who has shaken their fists to him, who has rebelled against him, who has committed treason against him, yet he has taken us and he has made us sons and daughters. He has made us his family. And he has made himself our father, our daddy. And if we are children, then we are also heirs. If we are adopted children, we are just the same as a biological child. And we are heirs of all of his good gifts. So God has, he has adopted us, friends. And J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, states this about adoption. He says this, He says, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. And he continues to say this, that that this may cause the raising of eyebrows, for justification is the gift of God on which Luther and the evangelicals have laid the greatest stress. And we are accustomed to say, almost without thinking, that free justification is God's supreme blessing to us sinners. Nonetheless, Packer says, Careful thought will show the truth of the statement that we just made. The truth of the statement that adoption is one of the highest privileges as a Christian. That we can call God our Father. We can call Him our Daddy. So think about this. As Christians, we need to understand that Christianity is not about rules. It is about relationships. It is about a relationship with our Heavenly Father who is in heaven. We are a family, and as a family, we are to conduct ourselves in a certain way because of who we are and who God has claimed us to be. And so thinking about these family terms and thinking about the relational aspect there, J.I. Packer continues to go on, It says this about Christian conduct and how we can see this in the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we look through the Sermon on the Mount, we can see some uh, Christian conduct there. In Matthew chapter uh, 5, 44, Jesus says this. He says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father, of your daddy, who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So first, we are to imitate our Father. This is Christian conduct. We are to imitate our Father, and we are to love the unlovable. We're to love those who hate us. This is God. Second, we are to give glory in Christian conduct. Matthew 5.16 In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to who? To your Father. To your Father who is in heaven. 
We are to seek to please God by doing these things with a right heart. Matthew 6, 17, Jesus says, But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in heaven. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Fourth, Christian conduct. Fourth, we are to be a people of prayer. Jesus says what? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. A healthy family talks. A healthy relationship between a, a son and daughter and their daddy is they talk. We see this in Christian conduct. And fifth and finally, we see that we are to be a people of faith. When Jesus says, do not be anxious, but trust your heavenly Father. Jesus says, for the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So you see this Christian conduct being played out there in relational terms in the Sermon on the Mount. So we must wonder, what's going on here in Ephesus that Paul would be bringing this up, while he would be bringing up Christian conduct? And so... Well, where did they go off course? If we're thinking about family here, what's the foundation and bedrock of any family? Love. Love is the bedrock of any family. And looking back at chapter 2 of this book, Paul tells them, he says that we are to pray without anger and quarreling, thus indicating what? That that's exactly what they were doing. We know that this is a polemic letter, and he is writing to correct error. Thus, that's what they were doing. They were praying with quarreling and anger. That's what's going on. The godly design of a family is one of love and function. Yet, this church was acting not in love, but in dysfunction. There was dysfunction going on there in that family. And there was anger and quarreling taking place. Now, considering the context of everything that we've read here in 1 Timothy, but also, let's keep in mind that the, book of, or the church of Ephesus is spoken of in Revelation, we can see where they went off course. In the book of Revelation, we read this concerning the Ephesian church. Jesus says this to them. He says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. When you consider that, you can see that this is where they went off course. As a family, love was no longer the foundation of their church. It was more about the rules than it was the relationship. The relationship between their heavenly father and their brothers and sisters. And we must understand that when our conduct is not reflective of God's will and his word, there are consequences to this. Continuing on there in Revelation, Jesus says this, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In 1 Peter, Peter says this regarding the household of faith. He says, For it is time for, the ju for judgment to begin in the household of God. There are consequences when we do not conduct ourselves in a way that is honoring and glorifying to God. We as the household of God, the family of God, 
are to imitate God. And God is what? God is love. God is love. Thus, we must act in love. We must imitate Him by bringing Him glory in our loving conduct. We must please Him with our loving conduct. And we express that in prayer and trust and faithfulness to Him. We are to conduct ourselves in love, not only, guys, towards God, but towards each other. There's a vertical and there's a horizontal aspect here. Jesus tells the disciples in John 13, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, and you also ought to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the commandment that Jesus has given us, to love one another because we are family. And it is about relationship, not about rules. But how does this play itself out? What does it look like for us to be loving one another? Well, the Apostle John later tells us in 1 John chapter 3, he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John's looking back to what Jesus said there that we should love one another, that we should not be like Cain, who was the, of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why he did murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that, he, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, and everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And no one, that no, no one, I'm sorry, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now listen carefully, this is the practical part. John says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is how we are to love one another. And this is how we imitate God. This is how we glorify God. It's the church. And so we must remember that the church does not belong to us. It belongs to God. We're brothers and sisters here. And He is our Father. And we must understand it is God's church. Paul says the church of the living God. And a more literal but less grammatically correct translation of that would be the living God's church, showing the possessiveness of it. And so we must always remember that this doesn't belong to us. And I think that it is a challenge for many elders and pastors to think that, well, this is my church. It's not our church. It's not your church. It's God's church. It belongs to Him. He paid for it with his own blood. He has bought this church himself. It belongs to him. So he came. He died for it. And when we conduct ourselves in a way that is not becoming of a functional family, we bring disgrace upon this church and ultimately to God. And so we need to be very careful, friends, in how we relate to one another and how we treat one another. Our conduct should not be one of anger and quarreling. It should be one of love. 
We should be imitating God, our Father. And I know that's challenging sometimes. It can be very challenging. Yet, it is the conduct of the church. And Paul has made this very clear to us what our conduct should be. Now, our conduct flows out of our calling as the church. Paul tells us what that calling is here in verse 15b. He says that the church is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. You know, throughout salvific history, we see how God has entrusted his word and his message to people throughout time. From Adam and Eve to Noah to Abraham to Moses to the Israelites, to the prophets, and so forth. God has entrusted his message, his word, to different people at different times throughout history. And now, at this point in time in history, he has entrusted his word, his truth, his message, to us, the church. He's entrusted that to us. He's entrusted us to, to, uh, to, to uphold his truth, to uphold it and to defend it. That's our calling, friends. That is our calling. It was the same calling as the Ephesian church's calling was. And the Ephesian church should have got these word pictures that Paul keeps speaking of here. When you look back at Ephesians chapter 2, we read this. It says, So then that you are no longer strangers and aliens, speaking to the Ephesian church, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of what? Of the household of God. A relational term there once again. That we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Our pillar, our foundation of this household of faith is built upon the teaching and the preaching of the apostles. Which is what? Our Bible today. That is what our, our foundation is as the church. The Bible is our support, our pillar, with Jesus being that chief cornerstone. And once again, this word picture that Paul keeps giving Timothy and ultimately will be giving to the Ephesian church there is, is one that should be a vivid one. One of the wonders of the ancient world was the temple of Artemis. It resided there in Ephesus. If you can picture the Parthenon in Nashville and, and what it looks like with its pillars there in Nashville. This thing was much larger than the one in Nashville. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And this structure had over a hundred pillars around it that held up this massive structure. That's what the pillars did. And that's what we, the church, do today. We uphold the truth of God's word. And we come underneath the Bible and we lift it up for all to see. And just as there were many pillars that held up that massive structure there in Ephesus, so there are many pillars within the household of faith of God. There are many churches, many different people that uphold the truth of God's word. You know, the calling of the early church was not easy. It was not easy. Uh, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, he wrote this in his very short letter. He says, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
For certain people have crept in unnoticed who were long ago designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude wanted to write something uplifting. He wanted to write something encouraging. He wanted to write something that was positive. And let me tell you, that's a desire of many pastors today. We don't write something positive. We don't want to confront error. We don't want to do that. I mean, I know Pastor Justin, if he was here, Justin does not like confrontation at all. He doesn't like it. I don't think anybody really likes it. But it is our calling as the church to uphold the truth, to defend the word of God. It is our calling. As this Gentile Ephesian church dealt with false teachers and the mishandling of the truth, Paul gives a very sobering reminder of what the church's calling is. Our role is to uphold the truth that has been entrusted to us, not to make it up as we go along. I know that's a temptation of many. However, what we must understand is we're just glorified postmen. We deliver the message. We take the message that has been delivered to us and we deliver it to others. We simply get it from point A to point B. We are to deliver the message. It is not our role to do anything with that message. We just need to be faithful to keep it intact and to pass it along. That's our job. That's our role. Now, it wasn't going to get any easier for the church that Jude was speaking to. He says this later on in Jude. He says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up, in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Unfortunately, it's not any easier for us in our day. Jesus, speaking of the last days, which, by the way, that's what we're currently in, he says this in Matthew 24. Jesus says, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness, because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And so we see this in our culture today. False teaching is everywhere. Many false teachers still infiltrate the church today in 2019, just the same as it did back in 62-64 AD. It is everywhere. False teachers are ubiquitous. False teaching is ubiquitous. It is everywhere from pragmatism to, as Erica said, to therapeutic deism. It is all around us. However, our calling today is just the same. We are to uphold the truth. We are to be a pillar and a buttress of truth. That is our calling. And our calling, may we not forget, is not to just keep it to ourselves. Our calling is to make it known to the nations. Yes, we are to be faithful in upholding the truth of God and in defending the truth of God, 
but we are to be faithful also in the proclamation of the truth of God's word as well. And the purpose of that massive structure there in Ephesus was to put on display the greatness of Diana, this false dead God. The purpose of our structure, our household of faith, is to put on the, and display the greatness of our God, a living God. And by when we lift up the truth of God's word and we put it on display for all to see, we are putting on display the character and the nature of God with his word. And you think about it, our calling, and as we say here every week, is to worship Jesus, make disciples, multiply. How could we possibly do that without God's word and putting it on display? How could we truly worship Jesus without his word? How could we truly make disciples without his word? How could we truly multiply without his word? Now, we must have his word. We must put it on display for all to see. Now, finally, we see the confession of the church here in 1 Timothy. In verse 16, Paul says, Grade indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Confess here is the Greek word homo legetos, which means simply this, same word. This church was saying the same thing. They were saying the same thing about Jesus. In our confession, as the church, has not changed in 2,000 years. And any true church is continuing to say the same thing, that the mystery of godliness has been revealed. Our confession, guys, is Jesus. Our confession is Jesus. Jesus is godliness put on flesh. Jesus being the God-man and the wonderful truth of his life, death, burial, resurrection, and then one day return is our confession. It is our confession. And, guys, it is to be proclaimed among the nations. It is to be proclaimed among the nations, and that is our command and our mission. As the church was dealing with these false teachers, they were no doubt being tempted to deviate from this fundamental foundational confession. They were no doubt being tempted to do that. The confession that they made back in Acts. When you read in the book of Acts, you can read there how their confession of Jesus, their confession of Jesus is Lord, is a confession that caused a riot there in Ephesus. In Ephesus, there was a riot that broke out because of their godly conduct. It was putting a hurting on the pocketbooks of the local idol makers. And the confession of many there in Ephesus was this. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's what their confession was. But the small pocket of believers there in Ephesus, their confession was this. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness, which is what? Jesus. Now, should we ever deviate from our confession... We're not fulfilling our calling. And thus it will be reflected 
in our conduct. I'm amazed and I'm saddened in how many churches nowadays are or have slowly yet now rapidly deviating from this confession, from deviating from the focus of, of Jesus to philanthropic philosophies and political agendas. That's the focus of many churches now. And it is sad. May our confession always be Jesus. You know, one would think that we, didn't, we should not have to continually repeat the same mistakes and continually relearn the same things over and over again, yet we do. And in order to combat the personhood of Jesus, uh, Ligonier Ministries put out a confessional statement of Jesus and Christology. I want to read that to you just so we can make clear of what our confession is. It reads this. It says, We confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, He became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, He kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us His righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king building His church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise His holy name forever. Amen. This is our confession as well, Mission Church. This is our confession. And may we never deviate from this foundational truth, this basic truth of the church in the least of ways. And hear me out. May this confession never be empty words on our lips. May it forever and always be a song in our hearts. May it always be a song in our hearts. The song should also be a proclamation to the nations. A proclamation that Jesus is the mystery that has been revealed, that was long awaited. And may the nations hear this. Now, in conclusion, brothers and sisters, the message to us today is the same message as it was to the Ephesian church. To, this, to the Ephesian church. And, and we, are, we are to conduct ourselves in a certain way. Why? Because of who we are. We are family. We are family. And we are to conduct ourselves in love and not in anger and quarreling. And we are to do that because of who we are. We are family that God has made us sons and daughters of the Most High King. And this family has a family business. And that business is a calling. And that calling is to uphold and to defend the truth of God's Word and to proclaim it among the nations. We're to proclaim it among the nations. To know Him and to make Him known. That's our business. That's the family business. And so to the unbeliever here this morning, 
for anyone here who does not know Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to be a part of this family. I want to invite you to be a part of this family. I want to invite you to be a part of the household of faith. The household of God. Now, how does one do that? How does one do that? Well, you must first understand that it's not something you do. It's something that He has done. It's something that He has done. And God takes us, and He's the one that makes us sons and daughters. And He puts forth this invitation to you. The invitation that you, you must understand that you, you are a sinner. You are a sinner, and the wages of, those, of that sin is death. And that you need a Savior. That Savior is Jesus Christ. That Savior is the mystery that was revealed to us now. You need Jesus. You know, Romans 10 through 9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is the, with the heart that one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So would you make that confession this morning, if you're an unbeliever? Would you make that confession? I pray that you would. I pray that God would work in your heart, and that you would be a part of our family, and make the confession that Jesus is Lord. If you can truly say that, there's now no condemnation for you. But if you cannot, there is. You need to understand that. To the believer here this morning, I want to remind you that we're family. And we need to act like it. Our conduct should be one of love and not of anger and quarreling. That's what our conduct should be because of who we are. To the believer here this morning, I want to remind you that we have a high calling to uphold God's truth, to uphold His Word, and to be faithful with it. Not just in our defense of it, but the proclamation of it as well. In our homes, in our workplaces, and in our church. To the believer here this morning, I want to remind you that we have a confession. The confession of Jesus. The confession of the mystery of is Jesus. Remember that. May we never deviate from Jesus in everything and anything.